You know, it doesn't matter if it's WOTV or CNN or Fox News or BBC or News Nation. It only takes a few minutes every night, every day, watching TV, listening to the radio, to recognize that this world is a very hard world to live in. We would, as Christians, call that, say that we are living in a fallen world. So whether it's at an uh, individual level, a city level, a state level, a country level, or a national, excuse me, a world level. Whatever we look at, we see the news, we see all of the suffering that goes on. It can be a, nat a uh, natural disaster, it can be a pandemic, it can be a war, it can be protests, bringing it back to our own personal level, it can be the loss of a loved one, it can be the loss of a job, it can be a relationship that is really, really hard. You can just list them. They're always there. And when we think about that, when we think about suffering, we think about pain, we think about difficulty, and we put it together in what Scripture teaches about us about that, we draw several illustrations or several instructions that we can gather from that. For instance, we know that God uses suffering, uses difficulties in our lives to develop character, develop patience, to develop endurance. We know that He uses suffering and uses difficulties to advance the gospel. In fact, I would argue that without suffering, without difficulty, without our willingness to accept that, the gospel does not go forward. He uses suffering and difficulty in our lives to make us more empathetic. He uses suffering and difficulties in our lives for the whole world out there to recognize just how important God is to us. God is to us. He draws glory. He draws glory from allowing that suffering and difficulties in our lives and allowing us to be faithful in our response to that. And we would also put suffering and difficulties as part of the spiritual warfare that surrounds us and is all around us, calling us to put on the armor of God. But there's another important lesson that we can learn from this, another important understanding we can gather about suffering and difficulties that I want to focus on today. So let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us your wisdom and your insights. We pray that we would understand more fully who you are, understand more fully what you are like, and may that change and transform us. We pray these things in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. If you have your Bibles this morning, uh, forgive me, I didn't make a PowerPoint. Uh, I will next week. Uh, turn to the book of Lamentations. So if you forget where Lamentations is, you've got Isaiah, you've got Jeremiah, and then a the little small book after Jeremiah called Lamentations. We're going to look at the, the zenith of this book, the high point of this book, Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 40. <clears throat> Let me give a little bit of historical background so we understand exactly where the author is coming from. We believe the author is most likely Jeremiah. We've had the divided monarchy in Israel. So we've had Israel and Judah separated into two separate kingdoms. And that separation has not led to any type of spiritual growth on the part of the people. Instead, what has happened is an increase in terms of idolatry, an increase in terms of the sins that idolatry actually opens up, which would be social sins, and various other injustices that happen in the community itself. The prophets have been sent. The prophets have called people to repentance. And the prophets' ministry have fallen on deaf ears as the people have continued to walk in their patterns of sin. 
which has led to which has led to the exile for the the nation of Israel in 722 the nation of Judah in 605 and then two other times after that the exile off to Babylon Jeremiah in this book we believe is lamenting what the nation is going through and in this lamentation in this lament we learn a very important lesson with regard to how we are to approach suffering. God has been faithful. It's an interesting concept. Thank you, Josh, for the songs that you chose. God is faithful even in the midst of this because He is carrying out His promises that He gave to the nation in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. They failed to carry out their covenant responsibilities. God has not. God promised them that if they walked in patterns of sin, they would feel a long pattern of judgment ending in exile. And that is exactly what has happened for the people. So what is the lesson we can gather as Jeremiah reaches the zenith of this book in chapter 3, verses 19 to 40? It's this, that knowing God, knowing God, specifically His character, gives us hope and confidence in the midst of very profound and undeniable suffering. Let me repeat that again for you. Because this is the one thing I want you to remember. When you leave the doors today, and you go out today, and you begin to live life this week, and one of these sufferings comes your way, it is knowing God. Knowing God, primarily His character, that gives us a sense of profound confidence and hope in the midst of undeniable and very profound suffering. So the first point under that, that I believe supports that and explains that, is this. God never in Scripture, and specifically in this book, God never in Scripture asks us to deny our suffering. Instead, we are to enter wholly into our suffering. Wholly into our suffering. We're to recognize that suffering. We're to feel that suffering deeply. And this book points us to that. Look at verses 19 and 20. Chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 says this. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers, and notice please, is bowed down within me. The author calls himself to remember. The author himself is calling, as it were, God himself to recall and remember. And he himself is remembering. And when he enters into that, his soul, his inner soul, his inner being is bowed down. It is kneeling on the ground. Because he recognizes what? He recognizes my affliction, the general term in the Old Testament for pain and suffering. But notice my wandering, my moving away. My, the wormwood and bitterness. Describing these things in terms that are emotional, that are deep. He's not hiding. He's not denying it. I want to go back into the front of the book and I want to point out a few other things just to put this in some color for us so we can understand. When I say don't deny, enter fully, what does that mean? Chapter 2, verse 11. Turn over chapter, chapter 2, verse 11. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Chapter 1, verse 13. 
Chapter 1, verse 13. From on high, he sent fire into my bones, and it prevailed over them. He spread a net for my feet. He has turned me back. He has made me desolate. I faint all day long. In chapter 3, verse 48. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. So Jeremiah remembers those emotions. He brings those emotions forward. He wants to recall the depth of what he felt. He doesn't deny those things. Those emotions are real. Those emotions are not fake. Those emotions... In this book, as he brings them be, to remembrance to God and to himself, are not necessarily ungodly. I want to underline that. There are three realities, three realities that are part of this that I want you to see. Go back to chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. As the author recalls what has happened to Jerusalem, as the author recalls what has happened to his people, He's in the midst of the exile. Jerusalem has been sacked and destroyed. Chapter 2, verse 2. The Lord has swallowed up. He has not spared all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. Verse 5. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has destroyed its strongholds and multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. Verse 8. The Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. And that should be enough. The first reality of this, that the author faces, that he understands, that he recognizes. It is God himself that is behind this destruction. It is God himself who has carried out his promises. It is God himself who's active hand is involved in the very suffering and difficulty that they are facing. He recognizes that. He sees the reality of that. He understands that. Chapter 2, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20. See, O Lord, and look, with whom hast thou dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring? the little ones who were born helpless. Should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? Chapter 4, verse 10. The hands of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The second reality is the devastation, the depth to which we're talking about. Those things are not metaphors, people. 
Those are not just illustrations. That is the reality of what exile does. That is the reality of what siege in Jerusalem did. The devastation was complete. The devastation took all the way from giving life to taking life. The very life that was born is now taken by the one who bore it. Recognizing the realities and the devastation of that. The third reality is this. Chapter 5, verse, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. For, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Chapter 3, verse 64. Chapter 3, verse 64. Thou wilt recompense them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. And chapter 4, verse 13. Because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who have shed in her midst the blood of the righteous. Three realities. Number one, God's active hand is involved. Number two, the devastation of this judgment is seen and felt. But number three, it is deserved. It is deserved. The multitude of the sins of the people going all the way up to the priests and the false prophets and the leaders, the social sins that had come out from their idolatry, and God having sent the prophets over and over and over again saying, repent and this will not come. Turn away and this will not come. And they said, no. No. We enjoy our sin. We like our sin. God in the end says, for me to be faithful to the covenant as I have bought judgments at first small and then as time goes on, worse and worse and worse, I now actively seek to send you away from the promised land, to send you away from the place of blessing. So the first point I want us to see, point number one, is that we do not deny ever, we do not deny ever suffering. We enter into it wholly. We recognize it wholly. We put our eyes of faith on holy. And we see the realities that are a part of that suffering. But point number two is this. We are called to continually think over and over again about the character of God. There is a reality about singing. What we did today, singing theology. Reminding ourselves of the theological truths of what we just sang. God is faithful forever. And we need to enter into that fully too. As we fully enter into our suffering we need to continually think about the character of God. Go back to chapter 3, please. Verse 21. This I recall to my mind. The Hebrew is, this is, I bring, I, I make the decision to actually bring this upon my mind, upon my heart. Therefore, notice, please, I have hope. Therefore, I hope. In the midst of all of this suffering that I recognize and the reality of this, instead I turn my thinking, I deliberately take it up and place it upon my heart, upon my mind, and therefore I have hope. In what? 
what God is doing. So the first thing that we think about is God's plan. Secondly, verses 22, 23, and 24, we recognize that our God is benevolent. It's a nice word, isn't it? Benevolent. God is good. God is good. God is faithful. Notice probably the most famous verses in this whole book. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. The Lord Himself is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. Let's go back to verse 22. The Lord's loving kindness. The most famous word in the Old Testament to describe God's character. Not just His faithfulness, not just His love, not just His kindness. All in one word, this chesed word points to the fact that God is faithful to the covenant and therefore is good to His people. Pours His goodness out in kind deeds to His people. The NASB translates this, the Lord's covenant, loving kindness indeed never ceases. But the footnote, I think, is more accurate. The footnote says it is because of the Lord's loving kindness that we are not consumed. God in His judgment has put these people into exile, but they're still alive. They're still alive. The covenant still remains. And it's that loving kindness that we can rest upon, God's goodness that we can rest upon. He continues and says this, they are new, they are fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The word great there is not just something we stand back and say, wow, it's multiple. It's multifaceted. Got to get my word there. Multifaceted. It's everywhere. Everywhere we look around, there's aspects and manifestations of His faithfulness. Great in terms of multifaceted everywhere we look. Every morning we wake up, it's new. For this morning, for this day, this Sunday, and tomorrow it'll be for this Monday. God's faithfulness is new. God's loving kindness is new. Great is His faithfulness to His character to carry out that loving kindness. He goes on to say, the Lord is my portion. That's which I have received. Just like a portion of land, the Lord is that for me. Himself, not just what He gives. Therefore, what? I have hope in Him. I have hope in Him. Continually, all the time, I put my hope only in Him. In Him. In His sovereign goodness, in His sovereign character. Not just simply in the fact that, okay, now that I put my hope in Him, everything's going to turn out good. The exile's going to end. We're all going to go back to Jerusalem. And when we get back to Jerusalem, the wall will be there. The temple will be there. Everything will be good. No, we don't say that. The Lord is my portion. I have hope in Him. In Him. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the person who seeks Him. To the one who waits. To the one who has courage. To the one who has hope. Interesting, the Hebrew word there for wait can be translated hope or wait. It's used that way in both ways throughout the entire Old Testament. So this person, the Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to those who hope in Him, to the person who seeks Him. So notice the whole thing is focused on Him. The whole thing is not focused on what He gives. It's, not focused, it's focused on His character. It's a recognition that God is always faithful, always good, no matter what is going on around us. Sometimes it's often a good thing to turn that news off, 
Not that we're blind to the realities around us, but that material constantly bombarding us, whether it be on our phone or our TV, is constantly pulling us away from looking up to see Him, to pulling out and starting to slowly but surely eat away at our heart and creating us different responses. The author goes on to talk, notice verses 31 to 36. The Lord will not for, the Lord will not reject forever, for if He causes grief, He will have compassion according to His abundant loving kindness. He does, for He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under His feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Please notice, of these things the Lord does not approve. This is God, not God's first choice in dealing with His people. This is not, the judgment is God's last choice. The judgment is God's last step. The first step is God's pouring out His goodness on His covenant people. His intention is always for them to grow and for them to flourish in the covenant relationship. But as the people take steps of sin which lead to their destruction, which lead to pain in this sinful world, God in His grace and in His mercy begins the process of judgment to bring them back, to bring them back to the path that they should be walking on, covenant faithfulness with Him. And as they refuse, it gets harder and harder to bring them back. And God's judgment gets harder and harder, always with the goal of doing those things that are good for them. So God's intention is always for the good of His people. God's intention is always for the people to be growing and flourishing in Him. Notice verse 37 and 38. What are we thinking about here, folks, in this whole section? Remember, point two. We are thinking upon the character of God. Not denying our suffering and are wholly into our suffering, but as we are doing that, we are putting our focus on the character of God. The first thing we saw was His plan. The second thing we saw was His benevolence. The third thing we saw was His intention for His people. The next thing we see is His sovereignty. Verses 37 and 38. Who is there who speaks? And it comes to pass, notice, unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? God's sovereignty means what? God's sovereignty means for your good, for His glory, God acts. He has every right in our lives to do anything He wants at any time He wants to fulfill those purposes. And we as people who are His members of His kingdom, people of His family, people of His church, need to respond to that sovereignty well. This is not an issue of argument, as it often is in our midst as we think about Calvinism versus Arminianism and free will versus God's sovereignty. This is an issue of worship. This is an issue of faith. This is an issue that draws our hope, that says, praise God. He has not taken His hand away. He has not taken His hand away. It doesn't necessarily mean we all, we all know the reason why. All of the reason why. But we do know His character. We do know His character. So Jeremiah, just like Job, in his dealings with God, learned very basically at the end of the book, you can't put God into a box and say, huh, 
I've been righteous my whole life. God shouldn't be punishing me. And so in the end of the book, what did Job say? I put my hand over my mouth and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Because what I said about you was wrong. We need to do that sometimes in front of the sovereignty of God. Point number three. Point number three. Point number one was what? We do not deny our suffering. We enter into it wholly. Point number two is what? Even in the midst of doing that, we put our focus on thinking continually about God's character. Character. Thirdly, that leads, that leads to a proper response on our part. Verses 26, 27, and 28. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. I don't think God is saying we just sort of sit down and shut up entirely because after all the book is written. (laughs) He did lament for five chapters. But there is something that goes into this, I think, that says there is not an issue of sitting down and just pounding. I do not understand. I will not understand. You tell me why and I'll believe. We don't ever need to know why. All we need to know is that he is good, he is sovereign, he is benevolent, he's involved. And so in that sense, there is a silent trust and waiting. I just love the concept in Scripture of waiting. Isaiah 40, 31, remember what it says? Those that wait upon the Lord are what? They mount up with like wings of eagles. They have strength, stronger than the Marines, stronger than SEAL Team 6, because they are able to wait silently for God himself to respond. Verse 40, verse 40, let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. There's your repentance. There's your repentance. Repentance is a turning of our thoughts, a turning of our focus away from ourselves, away from what we think, and recognizing, this is a hard thing to say, isn't it? A recognizing, huh, what I was thinking about this was wrong. What I was thinking about God with relationship to whatever this is was wrong. I need to turn back to Him. I need to make a 180 degree turn away from what I was thinking and turn instead to what He has revealed about Himself and believe that. And believe that. So what's my main point today? It is knowing God. Knowing God. Specifically His character. I like to talk about, when I counsel with people, I like to say we've got three P's that we can always rely on. God's presence, God's power, and God's promises. So when I think about presence, that's what I think about in terms of character. Notice there's a fourth P, a fourth P, that I like to say we don't know as much about that as we think, and that's God's progress. We know what's revealed here. We can rest in that. We can trust in that. But the other part of God's program, we might not know. And interestingly, for us to obey, we don't need to know all the details of that program. So coming back. 
knowing God, specifically His character, gives us a profound hope and a profound confidence even in the midst of deep, profound, undeniable suffering. So what does this mean application-wise for us? First thing I want to just talk about is this, is our emotions. Our emotions. When we think about us as human beings, and we talk about ourselves as being fallen creatures, we have to recognize that everything about us has been tainted by sin. So our mind, our emotions, and our will are all tainted by sin. And our emotions, therefore, I don't want to say are sinful, but they are tainted by sin. They are fallen. But our emotions are something that we can use because what we feel, what we feel is a window into what we are thinking about God right now. What we feel, entering into our emotions fully. I am really angry right now. I am profoundly worried right now. I just lost my job. I just lost my wife. I just lost this. What is going to happen? I am so enter into that fully. But allow that to be a window to say, huh, what am I believing about God right now? What am I believing about God right now? That's what this book is pushing us to see. Enter fully into your emotions, but then let that draw back and see the profound picture of what God is doing. God doesn't want a mask. Never wants a mask. Ever. So when you come to church, when you see someone in school, when you see someone, if you're not doing well, and someone says to you, Josh, how you doing? You don't say, great, when he's not. Because that's a what? Lie. I'm really struggling right now. Pray for me. What a profound thought to say that we can be weak in front of people and allow ourselves to be ministered to by them. So no masks, ever. Understand what the emotions are. Understand that they fall under the taint of sin. Understand that they are a window into what you believe about God, a profound window that helps you to probe your faith with regard to God about this situation and what you are thinking. Number two. The most profound hope and support in the midst of our suffering, the most profound hope and support in the midst of our suffering are truths about God that we learn in Scripture. That is something that takes a big step of faith for us. Because for most of us, we don't normally say that we're doing better until our emotions are feeling better. This book allows us to really feel profound, deep emotions that are really hard and yet at the same time still have hope in the character of God. In the character of God. So getting us to rethink that. To, as it were, repent that. To say that I can, in the midst of my faith in the character of God, trust Him, have hope in Him, even though my life is just a mess right now and my emotions are kind of all over the place. We don't have to know everything about God's character. Deuteronomy 29.29 29. 
and Proverbs 25.2 both indicate, both indicate that God's hiding things from us gives glory to Him. That's another profound, profound aspect of our faith. To be able to say, God, you have every right to not tell me why. To not tell me why I have this lost loved one. To not tell me why I lost my job. To not tell me why I have cancer. To not tell me why, why, why. You have every right to do that. In fact, that glorifies you. Because in this process, now I can be quiet and trust you. And trust you. Number three. This is another interesting thought that I gather from this book, especially the, the way the passage is put together, and that's this. Thinking, correct thinking, comes before emotions begin to heal. Correct thinking comes before emotions begin to heal. In our midst of trying to help people, we often put our arms, and properly so, put our arms around people, say, I love you, I'm with you, I'm praying for you, etc., when the person's emotions are calmed down and we can help them to rethink through this situation so their emotions can come out the other side healthy, those are good steps to take. To recognize not right at the beginning when a person is feeling really bad. Well, you know, brother, you know, sister, Romans 8.28 is still in the book. And the person is not even close to being ready to hear that. But when they are, they need to hear that. Because that truth, that thinking is what they need for their emotions to truly heal. And then the last thing that this passage, I believe, teaches is this. Patient endurance and silence, not complaining, are good. It's interesting how in counseling people often say, well, just let it all out, brother. Just pour it all out, everything that you feel. Just dump it out. And although this book allows us to enter fully into that, there's also a part here that it says it is good for a man to bear the yoke in silence. It is good for the person to learn patient endurance. So This is part of the interesting thing in the Christian life, guys. The interesting thing in the Christian life is this. It's not always just one thing. It's a whole gamut of stuff that we are to know and to do and sometimes we live in the tension. Well, do I talk? Do I not talk? Am I silent? Do I complain? Do I lament? And it takes faith to trust in God to know which is which and what I need to do. What's my main point today? Knowing God. A real, true faith in knowing God. A faith that can lament. A faith that can ask God why. A faith that can say, how long, O Lord? That's what gives us hope. A profound hope in the midst of really deep and undeniable suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and what it teaches us. We pray, Father, that we would take from this a message that we can take home and learn. Learn how we are to respond better. Learn how we are to respond in hope and faith to the difficulties that surround us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.